Republic. Written and narrated by Christopher Vale. Theme song Lionheart by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 3. Sedition of a Revolutionary Kind It was the night before the crucifixion, and Jesus and his disciples had just finished the Passover meal, now known as the Last Supper. The Messiah had washed his servants' feet and shared with them all that was going to happen. He explained that he was about to go to his father's house, and there he would prepare a room for them. The twelve were confused and understandably upset. Then Jesus turned his eyes heavenward and prayed to his Father. He prayed for himself first, then he prayed for his disciples, and finally he prayed for all future believers. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. John 17:23. Indeed, the believers were unified, one church, one bride for Jesus Christ. For over a thousand years, the church was united. Then, in 1054, the first schism occurred, splitting the church into east and west. The western church became known as Roman Catholicism, and the eastern church became known as Eastern Orthodox. The next schism of the church began in 1517, when a Roman Catholic priest named Martin Luther, nailed his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church, kicking off what is now commonly referred to as the Protestant Reformation. Seventeen years later, in 1534, the Roman Catholic Church in England declared it was no longer under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome, splitting it off and forming the Church of England, or Anglican Church. King Henry VIII declared the Church of England the official church of the realm, destroyed the shrines to the saints, dissolved the monasteries, and confiscated the monastic lands. When Henry's staunchly Catholic friend and mentor, Sir Thomas More, declined to convert, the king took his head. As the axeman raised the blade over More's head, King Henry's old friend joked, Please do not chop my beard in two. It has not committed treason. After Henry's son, Edward VI, took the throne in 1547, at the age of only nine, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, began to move the Church of England in an even more Protestant direction, which included a new worship as set forth 
and the Anglican Church's Book of Common Prayer. Edward became ill and died just a few years later at the young age of 15. His half-sister Mary took the throne. Unlike her half-brother, Mary had been raised Roman Catholic and sought to return the church to the papacy. She reversed Edward's Protestant reforms and set about executing all who resisted, including Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who was burned alive. In all, the Queen burned over 280 Protestants at the stake, earning her the nickname Bloody Mary. In 1558, Mary died childless at the age of 42. Her half-sister, Elizabeth I, took the throne and instituted the Elizabethan settlement. This settlement, known in Latin as Via Medea, or the Middle Way, reformed the church in a Protestant direction, but still kept its Catholic nature and emphasized the apostolic succession. In other words, the Church of England, like the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, could still trace the lineage of its ordination all the way back to Christ's apostles and thus to Christ himself. There was a group within the Church of England who wanted an even more Protestant church along the traditions of John Calvin. These Puritans, as they were known, secretly began building a parallel church to the official Church of England. Their plan was not to break away from the Anglican Church, but to remake it as a Presbyterian assembly. Instead of priests and bishops ordained in the apostolic succession, the church would be run by preachers and lay elders. The Catholic rituals would be wiped away and the role of the monarchy in church affairs would all but disappear. When this plot to transform the church was discovered, it was considered sedition of a revolutionary kind, even by Bishop Bancroft, the future Archbishop of Canterbury, himself a Protestant Calvinist. Upon discovery of the plot, the response from Parliament went completely overboard, as government responses are apt to do. They passed a law banning unapproved religious gatherings to be punished by prison or even banishment. The Puritans were forced underground, but they did not go away. Elizabeth, famously known as the Virgin Queen, after whom Virginia was named, obviously died without any children. Her death in 1603 ended the reign of the House of Tudor. The House of Stuart was established when James, the King of Scotland, and son of Elizabeth's famed rival Mary, Queen of Scots, took the throne. Having seen his father assassinated and his mother beheaded as civil war between Protestants and Catholics raged in Scotland, James wanted nothing more than peace and unity. Since he had been raised a Calvinist, the Puritans hoped James would view them more favorably than Elizabeth and lobbied the king to remake the church in the Puritan mold. James was willing to hear them out and convened a debate to listen to both sides. At the end of two long days, James remarked somewhat jokingly, If this be all they have to say, I shall make them conform themselves, or I will harry them out of the land, or else worse. While James had no intention of turning the Church of England into a Presbyterian assembly, he did agree to some reforms, including the King James translation of the Bible. 
However, James fought back against the Puritans' nonconformity by insisting that everyone follow the Book of Common Prayer. Furthermore, the church began moving to close up the loopholes that Puritans had been using. These new rules also enforced stricter regulations for the church as a whole. Clergy, for example, were barred from going to taverns or gambling. The new rules led to the separatist movement, led by John Robinson and John Smythe. To James, the separatists were a disease that threatened disorder in what he idealized as his perfect monarchy. James decided that to save his people and his kingdom from the disease, he would have to eradicate it. James did not like the Puritans because they followed their personal inclinations instead of that of the church and the kingdom as a whole. He believed them to be too devoted to their own selfish obsessions that they could not see the negative impact they were having on the entire society. He feared the Puritans would destroy the unity of the whole realm. James was determined to unify the island of Britain, which consists of England, Scotland, and Wales. After surviving the gunpowder treason and plot, a Catholic conspiracy led by a man named Guy Fawkes to blow up Parliament and the King, James began exiling those that threatened his perfect unity. The exiles included not only Roman Catholics, but also gypsies and, of course, Puritans. Led by Thomas Helways, hundreds of Puritans fled to Holland in 1608. There, living as strangers in a strange land, the Puritans were forced into manual labor, generally in the textile industry. This was quite a change for them, as most had been minor gentry, yeoman farmers, or tradesmen back in England. Now, they lived in poverty in the Dutch city of Leiden. A year after leaving London, Puritan leader John Smythe began leading the exiles, whom I will refer to as pilgrims henceforth, to differentiate them from the Puritans remaining in England, in an even more radical direction. Claiming infant baptism was not valid because infants could not give consent, Smythe insisted on rebaptizing the adults. This caused a schism, with Smythe leading some pilgrims away from Thomas Helwey's thus proving the Archbishop of Canterbury correct when he predicted that the Puritans, when left to their own devices, would continue fracturing. Meanwhile, John Robinson and William Brewster led a separate community to the industrial center of Leiden. The city was growing rapidly as industry there became the most explosive in all of Europe. In 1575, Leiden only had a population of some 10,000 souls, but by 1622, it had swelled to 45,000. A young man named Edward Winslow and his new bride, Elizabeth, joined Robinson and Brewster's group. Winslow was well-educated, intelligent, a natural leader, and staunchly opposed to the Church of England. He went to work for Brewster, printing leaflets, criticizing not only the church and its bishops, but also King James himself. The king was not amused and sent agents to arrest Brewster. Brewster was forced into hiding and his printing press was seized. As refugees, the pilgrims were at the bottom of the social ladder in Leiden. They were, however, extremely hard workers. 
When they first moved to Leiden, the textile industry was booming. But soon, prices fell, while taxes on necessities, such as flour, rose. By 1616, the economic situation had completely deteriorated. As more and more people crammed into the city, squalor and disease exploded. While thousands fled the countryside to the overcrowded urban centers in search of work, the pilgrims realized that they had to do the opposite. With death rates much higher in the cities, children forced to work in factories, endless labor, harsh diet, and rampant disease, the pilgrims realized that escaping the urban squalor was their only chance at a decent life. The longing to escape the urbanized hell, coupled with the desire to bring Christ's gospel to the natives in North America, convinced the pilgrims that they should seek to colonize the New World. The urgency to do so increased as things went from bad to worse in Holland. In 1617, violent clashes between religious groups began to take place when liberal Dutch pastors began to ignore some Calvinist doctrines and the official doctrine of the Dutch Reformed Church. Calling themselves Remonstrants, these pastors believed that God could freely choose to save everyone if he desired, which completely flew in the face of predestination, as taught by Calvin. The pilgrims were staunch Calvinists, and thus opposed the ideologies of the Remonstrants. However, as refugees in a foreign land, it was dangerous to take sides, at least publicly. King James sided with the Dutch Reformed Church, despite the fact that they were the same type of staunch Calvinists he had opposed in England. This evidences that James was really less concerned with religious doctrine than with keeping order and unity. Hoping England's alliance with the Dutch Calvinists would relieve James's disdain for Puritanism, the Pilgrims sent representatives to meet with the London-based Virginia Company about settling in the New World. Meanwhile, Prince Maurice and the Calvinist hardliners defeated the Remonstrants, thus placing the Pilgrims on the winning side. So, while they were negotiating with the Virginia Company, the Pilgrims were making friends with the Dutch government. In fact, they nearly sailed to America under the Dutch flag instead of the English. The New Netherland Company offered to settle the Pilgrims in the Dutch-controlled lands in what is present-day New York. However, the Dutch were facing new hostility from Spain, and Prince Maurice feared that settling the Pilgrims in New Netherlands might sour his alliance with James. So the Pilgrims did not sail under the Dutch flag. Meanwhile, in England, a new fad was gripping the nation. Beaver skin hats had become a national craze after James's son, Prince Charles, became obsessed with them. Naturally, owning a beaver skin hat became a status symbol among London's privileged set, and the more one owned, the higher the status one reflected. Because of the high demand, Europe's beaver population was nearly decimated. In North America, however, beavers were plentiful. A group of investors from London, led by Thomas Weston, hoped to capitalize on the beaver craze as well as other investment opportunities in America. They had even employed Captain John Smith to explore New England on their behalf following his adventures in Virginia. Weston was contacted by the Pilgrim's agent, John Carver, 
and agreed to finance the Pilgrim's colony. John Carver was a prominent member of the Pilgrim's church in Leiden. He knew all too well the terrible conditions they were all facing in the urban hell, as he and his wife Catherine's first child had died among the disease and squalor of the city. Eager to leave Leiden, he happily traveled to England to convince Weston to invest in the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims attempted to hire John Smith to accompany them, as they wanted an experienced soldier for protection. But Smith, ever the soldier of fortune, demanded too much money to join the settlers. The Pilgrims instead convinced former English army officer and fellow religious refugee, Miles Standish, to accompany them to the New World. Standish would lead all military operations once the Pilgrims reached America. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again. And now, back to Home of the Brave. The Pilgrims, including Edward Winslow, William Bradford, Miles Standish, and William Brewster, left Leiden aboard the Speedwell to return to England and rendezvous with the Mayflower, a ship John Carver had hired in London. While sailing from the Netherlands, the Speedwell began to leak and had to be patched up while they waited in Plymouth Harbor in England. On August 5, 1620, the Speedwell and Mayflower finally got underway, sailing for the New World. Unfortunately, the Speedwell began to leak again. It was once again patched, and the two ships set sail once more on August 21st. 300 miles into the Atlantic, the Speedwell began to leak yet again. The two ships returned to the harbor at Plymouth, and the Pilgrims decided to abandon the Speedwell and load everyone onto the Mayflower to take the journey alone. This made the already overcrowded Mayflower even more so. In September of 1620, the Mayflower set sail from Plymouth. Only about a third of the passengers were Pilgrims. The rest were men they had picked up in London. There were 102 passengers on the Mayflower who lived below the main deck on the gun deck, so named as it holds the cannons. The gun deck measured only 1,392 square feet. With 102 passengers, that meant each passenger would only have about 13.5 square feet, less than the size of a twin bed, in which to live. However, that number is far larger than reality, as the passengers had to share floor space with the windlass, the capstan, the mainmast, and the spirit sail mast. Furthermore, the Pilgrims had brought along a 30-foot single-sailed shallop 
which was also stored on the gun deck. Needless to say, it was quite crowded. Families placed wood dividers between them to give themselves a little privacy. The Mayflower reached the coast of America 66 days later on November 9, 1620. However, the passengers had been living aboard ships for a month and a half before they had even left England. So by the time land was spotted, the passengers had been living aboard a ship for 80 days. During that time, they had dealt with seasickness and treacherous storms. Of the 18 adult women that made the voyage, three were in the final trimester of their pregnancy. The captain's intention had been to land on Long Island, but after two months of sailing the Atlantic, landed in Cape Cod, nearly 150 miles north. Because they were beyond the patent of the Virginia Company, several of the colonists, the latecomers from London, claimed they did not have to obey orders and threaten mutiny. To resolve the issue, the colonists formed the Mayflower Compact, agreeing to form a civil body politic and obey such just and equal laws as they may establish. In other words, they agreed to violate the terms of their charter by building a settlement under their own laws and outside of the charter's boundaries. The London men were forced to agree to the compact as the captain had no intention of returning to England before spring. The Mayflower Compact was a democratic government, drafted in the spirit of the pilgrims, who claimed to have come to America as free-born subjects of the state of England. They believed that being free meant no one could force on the colony any tax or ordinance except by consent according to the free liberties of the state and kingdom of England and no otherwise. From the pilgrims' perspective, the will of the people was paramount to that of the king. They then elected John Carver as the first governor of the colony. On November 11, 1620, 15 men went ashore to explore the coast for the first time and have a look around the area they named Provincetown. A few days later, another expedition of 16 men explored further inland. They even spied a group of natives in the distance. The expedition also discovered a ship's copper kettle buried in the dirt and filled with corn. They took the kettle and corn back to the Mayflower with them, having every intention to pay for it when they found the owners. The passengers aboard the ship were understandably eager to go ashore and begin building their colony. Living aboard a ship for such a long period of time during that era was a terrible experience. Still, they wanted to choose the ideal location for the colony, and instead of settling at Provincetown, they agreed to sail around Cape Cod in search of a better place to settle. Ideally, they hoped to locate an estuary, that place where a river meets the ocean. On December 6th, a party which included William Bradford, Miles Standish, Edward Winslow, John Carver, and his indentured servant John Howland, set out in a boat to explore the area. They landed on a beach to make camp for the night, when they had their first encounter with the native people. While breaking camp, the expedition was attacked by 40 Indians, raining arrows down on top of them. Fortunately, the pilgrims were able to fight off the attackers with their muskets, and they sailed the boat back out into the cape. After the boat's mast broke, 
and they were nearly wrecked in a gale, they finally discovered the land on which they would build the colony. On December 16, 1620, the pilgrims began landing on the location they famously named Plymouth Rock. The site the pilgrims chose to settle had dense woods, a good harbor, and flowing brooks of fresh water. It was easily defensible with a hill that could serve as a redoubt. This was important for the colonists, as they assumed that the natives were hostile since they had been attacked during their first encounter with them. Further inland, the pilgrims discovered cornfields which had been abandoned by the local tribes. By the time they landed on Plymouth Rock, winter was already upon them. The pilgrims had studied everything that Captain John Smith had written about his travels to New England in preparation for their journey. Much of it had been exceptionally accurate, including being greeted by pilot whales when they entered Cape Cod. However, Smith had explored this coast earlier in the year and had not experienced a New England winter. Thus he, and by extension the pilgrims, had no idea how brutal the weather could be. The first week of December had already brought six inches of snow. The pilgrims set about constructing a common storehouse to keep the goods safe from the winter weather, but it would not be completed until near the end of January. There was a good deal of murmurings and even some mutinous speeches and carriages, but they were quieted by wisdom, patience, and just an equal carriage of things by the governor. The pilgrims' first winter was horrible. They lacked houses and faced numerous diseases, such as scurvy and worse. At any one time, there were only six or seven healthy people. Those healthy ones prepared meals, chopped wood, washed clothes, and did everything else to help the sick and dying. Most did it willingly, without any complaint. Others were not so charitable, including one young member of the ship's crew who had refused to help the sick. However, he soon fell ill himself. When the pilgrims went to help him, he confessed he did not deserve it at their hands. He had abused them in word and deed. Oh, saith he, you I now see, show your love like Christians, indeed, one to another, but we let one another die like dogs. While the pilgrims and other English suffered and died, they would often spy the natives lurking about. But whenever the Indians were approached, they would run away. Sometimes, the natives even stole the pilgrims' tools. In February, a dozen or so Indian warriors were spotted near the settlement, and those pilgrims strong enough prepared to repel an attack. Fortunately, no attack ever came, but it did inspire the men to unload a cannon from the ship to place atop Burial Hill. The winter weather finally began to break in March, yet 13 more people died in that month alone. By the end of the winter, 50 people, or half the company, had perished. As the ground thawed, the pilgrims were finally able to plant vegetables. On Friday, March 16th, an Indian called Somerset, who spoke broken English, walked right into the settlement. He traded beaver skins with ships up and down the coast and had learned the language from them. Knowing how much the white man yearned for pelts, he hoped to establish trade with these new Englishmen. After greeting the pilgrims, Somerset asked for beer. The beer supply had been depleted during the winter, however, and so they gave him brandy instead. 
Somerset seemed a friendly sort, and the pilgrims asked why they had been attacked by the first group of Indians they encountered. Somerset explained that the natives were hostile because they had experienced terrible encounters with other Englishmen, specifically a loathsome sea captain named Thomas Hunt. Hunt had been a member of Captain John Smith's expedition to New England. However, while Smith took a ship to return to England, Hunt's ship stayed behind. He and his men lured many natives onto their ships, where they captured them and sailed away to sell them as slaves. Among those that had been captured by Hunt and sold into slavery was an Indian warrior named Tisquantum. History, however, would remember him by the name the English gave him, Squanto. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. 